Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we thank you that he has sent his helper to us, the, the Holy Spirit. And I pray now as we look to your word and meditate upon it, would your spirit lead and guide us and conform us to the image of Christ. We pray that through our study and understanding of God's word that you would make us more like Jesus Christ today. And we pray this together in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Well, a perennial challenge for the Christian church has always been the difficulty of identifying who is truly a Christian. Throughout church history, there's always been imposters and defectors from the faith. In 1746, the American theologian Jonathan Edwards wrote the book titled Religious Affections. And and this book was really a response to America's first great awakening, uh, which by all accounts was a great revival in America, a great awakening. But it was not without some imposters. And so Jonathan Edwards wrote this book to shed shed light on the nature of true salvation, true conversion. We find much about this topic written in Scripture as well. For example, the Apostle John referred to false Christians as antichrists, antichrists, plural, for false Christs. In 1 John 2.19, he wrote about these antichrists and their departure from the faith. He wrote, They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that they would be shown that they are not of us. Similarly, Paul wrote about false disciples or false converts in the book of Titus. In Titus 1.16, he wrote, They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul referred to a man in the church who was living in immoral, unrepentant sin, and he referred to him as a so-called brother, meaning that Paul thought that there was a question about this man's salvation as to whether this man in the church was actually a Christian or not. Perhaps he was a Christian in name only, and Paul knew that because of this man's ardent refusal to repent of his sin, the genuineness of his Christianity or the the truthfulness of his salvation was called into question. And, And Jesus himself sought to prepare his disciples for this very issue as well, or this reality. He regularly warned against the problem of false faith, and he did so in rather frank and direct terms. For example, consider his stern warning to his disciples in Matthew chapter 7, or what we call the Sermon on the Mount. If you would, I'd invite you to turn there with me this morning as we begin the first gospel account, the gospel of Matthew, to the Sermon on the Mount, and really Jesus' conclusion to the Sermon on the Mount. Here Jesus is on top of this mountain, or near the top of this mountain, and he's teaching to his disciples. And in verses 21 through Through 23, Jesus really hammered home a conclusion to his sermon. So look there with me, Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 21. Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons. And in your name perform many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So Jesus warned his followers that there would be many on the last day who were convinced that they were followers of the Lord. They called him Lord, Lord. 
emphatically saying that Jesus was their Lord, only to come to the awful realization, when it's too late, that they actually did not know Christ. And so shutting the door of the kingdom in their self-righteous faces, he says, away from me, I never knew you. And earlier in chapter 7 of Matthew, Jesus instructed that a true follower of Christ would be recognized by their fruit. And here in Matthew 7, Jesus is specifically referring to false prophets or false religious teachers when he says, you will know them by their fruits. But the principle applies equally to all Christians. And we know that because in Luke 6, verses 43 through 45, Jesus essentially says the same thing about all Christians. He, He there applies this principle broadly to all professing Christians. So Jesus' statement here in Matthew 7, namely Matthew 7, 16, is true of every Christian. Look there with me. Matthew chapter 7, verse 16. He says, You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles are they. So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So you will know them by their fruits. Again, you will know a true Christian by their fruits. And so we might ask, well, what did Jesus mean here by fruit? What does fruit represent? And if I could just summarize that in a way, I'd say fruit in a Christian life could be summarized as the imitation of the life of Christ. In a person's life, if if their demeanor, if their whole life, if if their preferences and priorities all begin to resemble the life of Christ, then we would say they're bearing fruit. You see, in time, by the empowering of God's grace, by the Holy Spirit, a Christian will become more and more conformed to the image and the person of Jesus Christ the pattern of their life will be more conformed to the pattern of Jesus' life. The priorities of the Lord Jesus Christ will become this person's priority. This is the Spirit of Christ. The Holy Spirit will cause the fruit of the Spirit to be produced or to blossom in their life. And the degree of which a a Christian has fruit or the amount of their group, of of their fruit, will be in direct relationship to the Word of God in their lives. You see, the more a person gives themselves to understanding and believing and obeying the Word of God, the more fruit they will have in their life. The more a person gives himself to the Word of God by renewing his mind in the Scriptures, the more he will bear fruit and be conformed to the image of Christ. And in this, I'm reminded of one of my favorite quotes by theologian A.W. Tozer. He wrote, The Spirit-filled man lives in the Scriptures like a fish lives in the sea. A spirit-filled man will live in the Scriptures like a fish lives in the sea. Meaning, the man who is spirit-filled and bearing fruit for the Lord is someone who is just committed to welcoming the Word of God into his life. Into every aspect of his life, he welcomes the Word. And therefore, one's response to the Word of God really becomes a tell. It becomes an indicator in their life of the genuineness of someone's salvation. A true Christian will embrace the truth of the word and bear fruit, becoming more and more like Christ. And this was the central point of maybe Jesus' most well-known parable, uh, what we might call the parable of the sower, 
or the parable of the soils. If you would, I invite you to look at this parable with me. Turn to the book of Mark, just one book to the right, Mark chapter 4. And just to note the importance of this parable, I want you to begin by looking at verse 13. Mark chapter 4, verse 13. And he, Jesus, said to them, speaking here to his disciples, Do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all the parables? In other words, if you fail to understand this parable, you'll have trouble understanding all the other parables. So in this sense, this, par- this parable, if you correctly understand it, interpret it, it sort of creates a paradigm that will help you to, to interpret all the other parables. So getting our interpretation of this parable right is paramount for understanding all the parables. So let us back up to verse 1, Mark chapter 4, verse 1. And here Jesus began to teach again by the sea, and such a very large crowd gathered to him that he got into the boat in the sea and sat down. And the whole crowd was by the sea on the land, and he was teaching them many things in parables and was saying to them in his teaching, Listen to this. Behold, the sower went out to sow. And as he was sowing, some seed fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate it up. Other seed fell on the rocky ground, where it did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up, because it had no depth of soil. And after the sun had arisen, it was scorched. And because it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, And the thorn came came up and choked it out, and it yielded no crop. Other seeds fell into the good soil, and as they grew up, they increased and yielded a crop and produced thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. And then Jesus adds, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So with these words, thankfully, we don't have to struggle to interpret this parable because Jesus himself interprets it for us in the following passage. Look, he begins to explain this to us beginning in, again in verse 13. And he, said to, and he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. That's what Jesus says first. He says the sower sows the word. That means the sower, the one who throws out seed, represents the word of God going forth. The sower sows the word. It represents the preaching and teaching of God's word and all the teaching of Christ, including the gospel and just all the teaching of Christ, the word of God. The sower sows the word. And then there are four different types of receptions of the word represented by four different types of soils. The first type of soil, or the first response to the word, is represented by the packed earth alongside a footpath. And Jesus explains this in verse 15. These are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown, and when they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. So in other words, the the seed does not penetrate the ground. It's immediately taken away by the birds or here represented as Satan. He comes and takes the words from them. There is no growth. Then there's the rocky, shallow soil. Here the plant immediately shoots up only to be scorched by the sun. It had no roots. And Jesus explains this in verse 16, verse 16 and 17. Look there. And in a similar way, these are the ones on whom the seed was sown on rocky places. When they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. 
and they have no firm root in themselves and are only temporary, then when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. So note that they receive the word initially with joy. They take it in with joy, but then affliction and persecution comes as a result of the word of God, and thus they reject the word ultimately, and the plant dies. The third soil was infiltrated by weeds. Thorns choke out the life of the plant. And Jesus explains this in verses 18 and 19. The others are the ones on the who, and others are the ones on whom seed was sown among the thorns, and these are the ones who have heard the word, but the worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. So although the plant does grow here, its life is short-lived. It's in a short time, the, the plant is really strangled or suffocated by the worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, the, the desires for the things of this world. And it says it goes on to be unproductive. It yields no fruit. And then finally, we come to the fourth soil. We might call it the fertile soil. And here the seed takes root The plant increases and eventually yields a crop. Look at verse 20. And those are the ones on whom the seed was sown on good soil, and they hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, 30, 60, and 100-fold. So there you have it. You have four different responses to the word of God. And when considering this parable, really the crucial question becomes this. Of these four different responses to the word, How many represent a true Christian? So you have four different types of soils representing four different responses to the Word of God. How many represent a true saving response? And the answer is only one. Only one. Jesus said you will know them by their fruits. So if there's no fruit, there's no actual spiritual life. And notice that there's different levels or different quantities of fruitfulness here for that four soil. It says some 30, some 60, or some 100-fold. But notice that they all bear fruit. So some Christians really grow in leaps and bounds, and they affect many for Christ. They grow and yield a great harvest. And other Christians, it's more just mediocre fruit. They still bear fruit, but it's not as much. But Jesus said, in time, they will bear their fruit. And so that's why he says, you will know them by their fruit. Christians will have fruit. They'll bear fruit in their life. And this was a concept that the Apostle Paul knew well. He understood how the power of the teaching and preaching of God's words had the power to change people and to change their lives. And as a former persecutor of the church, Paul himself was changed by the power of the word. And then later, as sort of a missionary preacher, he watched God transform people by the teaching and preaching of the word. And he he realized that this was all a work of God. It was God's grace. And therefore, he thanked God for this whenever he saw it. And this is the very thing that we find him doing in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And if you've been with us for a few weeks now, you know we've been studying this inspired letter from the Apostle Paul. So I'd invite you to to make your way there with me to the book of 1 Thessalonians. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and then comes 1 Thessalonians. And this morning, 
will again be in this first chapter. And this first chapter really centers on this idea of Paul giving thanks to God for the vibrant faith of this church. Just about a year earlier, Paul had been there in their midst and he wanted to come to them, but he was unable to. So in in lieu of going to them in person, he writes a letter to them. And so before the missionaries were forced to leave by hostile Jews there in Thessalonica, a church was established. And now this young church needs instruction. And so Paul is writing to instruct them about some things. And beginning in this first chapter, he's offering a note of thanksgiving. So let's read the majority of this first chapter together, starting in verse 2. I invite you to follow along with me. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 2. Paul says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and your labor of love and your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. Just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place your faith towards God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. And so this entire paragraph really develops that opening line of we give thanks to God. He's just expanding upon that idea. And and Paul recognizes the church's faithful labor But he thanks God for it. He doesn't thank them. He thanks God for it. And Paul was most thankful here in this passage, according to verse 4, because God chose them. Paul was thankful that God chose them for salvation. In the words of Ephesians 1, God was, I mean, Paul was thankful that God chose them from before the foundation of the world. He was thankful that God had predestined them to adoption as sons and daughters of Jesus Christ. And then beginning in verse 5, Paul begins to explain how or why he knew this to be true. He gives really reasons to support his confident assertion that this church was chosen by God. And the first reason, which we saw last week, was really just the, the unique way that the gospel came to Thessalonica. When Paul and those two other missionaries came and preached the gospel, it came in power upon the people. It came in convicting power, converting power. It also came in authority. The missionaries heralded a a message there in Thessalonica that they knew was absolutely true. In their own lives even testified to that truth. Their own godliness testified to the truth of the message that they were preaching. So the preaching of the gospel in, in power provided just one piece of evidence that this church was chosen by God. But a second piece of evidence came in the way that the church received the gospel message, how they received the Word of God, how the church responded to the preaching of the Word of God testified to their status as being chosen of God. 
So this is the theme that Paul develops in verses 6 through 10. And this morning, we'll narrow in on verses 6 through 7. 6 and 7. And the, the center of these two verses comes around this phrase, having received the word. If you see it there in verse 6. Having received the word. This, this verb, receiving, may not be strong enough to capture the sense of this word. The term is used elsewhere to, re, to refer to receiving guests or welcoming guests into someone's home. So this church had welcomed the word. The word here refers to all of the apostolic teaching, everything that Paul taught about the Christian life. It definitely would have included the gospel message, the initial declaration of how they could be saved, but then it included like really the full deposit of Christian teaching that this church received. And you'll recall that he was only there for a short matter of time. So it would have been the truth that he could have given them in a short matter of time. And these Thessalonian disciples welcomed the word. And they did so really in, really in an exemplary fashion. So we might, what we find here in these verses might be titled, A Model Response to the Word. A Model Response to the, to the Word. And as we consider these verses, we sort of gain insight into what it looks like to be a person who welcomes the word. Like that fourth soil in Mark chapter 4, when the seed of the gospel is embraced and the word of God is welcomed into a person's life, there is inevitable, quantifiable fruit, quantifiable results that come from welcoming the word. And so as we consider these Thessalonians' response to the word, we should rightly reflect on our own response to the word. How do we receive the word of God? How do we welcome the word into our own life? And so we could really frame this passage up by calling it three results of welcoming the word. Three results of welcoming the word. And these results were true of this church in Thessalonica. And to some degree, they're true of all Christians. With each one of these results that we'll consider, we should be equipped to recognize that these are the results of true, true faith, true saving faith. And hopefully we'll also detect these responses or these results in our own lives. And we'll be also be equipped to see them in other people's lives as well. So three results of welcoming the word. And the first is this. It's, it's really a new disposition. A new disposition. We might, a new disposition evidenced in joy in affliction. Joy in affliction. So let's look at verses 6 and 7 again. He says, You became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. And we'll consider this passage kind of in the chronological order that the results occurred. So that the first thing that happened to the church was that they received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So after receiving the word, they began to then imitate the missionaries and the Lord. But first, the natural consequence of them receiving the word of God was joy in the Holy Spirit in the midst of tribulation, almost occurring simultaneously. You see, if, if they just would have rejected the word and said, no, we don't believe that, then there would have been no tribulation. There would have been no trials in their life. But because they were receiving the word and believing it, these persecutions, these afflictions arose in their life, and they received it with joy. And we have this kind of paradoxical mix of joy in the mix of affliction or tribulation. 
So the immediate result to their belief in the gospel was suffering, and yet suffering with joy. And really, the suffering part we understand. That that makes sense to us. It's the joy part that's really unusual. Uh, The term tribulation here is just a, a general term. It refers to a feeling or experience of distress caused by some external circumstance. Today, we might just use the broad term hardship. But in the New Testament, the idea includes things like being imprisoned for the sake of the gospel, uh, being beaten for the sake of Christ, being in poverty, suffering hunger, and really, and even like things like suffering mental anguish. The, identi- the, the idea here definitely includes being persecuted for the sake of Christ, but it also just includes more than just the basic trials of life that we all go through. And the missionaries, when they were there with the church, they had prepared them in advance for the difficulties that would come into their lives because they were Christians. And we see this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. If you just want to turn a page to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, we'll see how the missionaries prepared them to suffer. Look what it writes there, chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen you and encourage you in your faith so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction, and so it came to pass, just as you know. So these missionaries had prepared this church in advance, preparing them to expect affliction. Which is the same thing that Jesus did in John chapter 16. He says, in this world, you will have tribulation. And so earlier, Paul had been very clear with this church and other churches to expect hardship. He did the same to the churches in Asia. In Acts 14, 22, it records that Paul made this his habit. He says there, he strengthened the souls of disciples by encouraging them to continue, continue in the faith by saying to them, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom. What a thing to say, teaching these young Christians. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom. That's part of how Paul sort of catechized new believers. When afflictions arose, Paul wanted these young converts to know that it was necessary for them. It was God's will for them to suffer. As the Apostle Peter would explain, we know that Christ is our model in suffering. 1 Peter 1.21 says, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example for you to follow in his steps. So knowing that our Savior suffered, and that he wills for us to suffer according to his glory, and for his glory, we then follow in Christ's steps, knowing that this world is not our home. We have a better hope beyond this life. And so, for, as Paul writes, for our momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comprehension. So the Christian who realizes these things, that God has a purpose for our suffering, he's planned them and he's using it in our lives, that type of Christian will be able to experience joy in affliction. And these believers in Thessalonica really had much, the text says, great tribulation or much tribulation, but they also had joy. It's a joy sourced in and flowing from the Holy Spirit. So in the midst of our tribulations, through the Holy Spirit, they were able to have 
this kind of otherworldly joy. If you'll recall back in Mark 4, the second soil received the word and initially had some joy, but then affliction came. And then they departed. The joy departed, and they defected from the faith. But the true believer finds joy even in the afflictions when they come. So this was the immediate result of receiving the word. There was this paradoxical experience, paradoxical experience of affliction and joy together. And although the pairing of these two things, tribulation and joy, may appear strange to us, as you probably know, this is a common theme in Scripture. James writes, Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. James 1.2 Peter writes, to the, to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. 1 Peter 4.13 Paul writes, We exult in tribulation. He says, because we know that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope, and hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us in Romans 5. So the Thessalonians here, they received or welcomed the word, and as a result, they experienced joy and hardship. And I'm calling this all just a, a new disposition, because again, this is not normal. This is not the normal human response to trial, to, to experience joy. I mean, humans generally don't do that. But a Christian does, and the Thessalonians did. We might ask, well, is this normative? Is this how it should be for us today? Must it be true that a Christian have joy in hardship? And to that question, I'd say yes and no. I'd say yes, the joy must be there in at least seed form. If you have no sense of joy in the midst of trials that you experience in life or the difficulties in life, if you have no hope beyond this world, if everything is gloom and doom and if you can't lift up your eyes beyond your earthly experience and the trials that we're experiencing here and you have no heavenly hope, then it might be true that you just might not be a Christian. But at the same time, this joy is something that we can grow into. As Christians, as we are sanctified, we are increasingly able to interpret all the things that happen to us and process them with joy. This is what James says, after all. Consider it, count it, all joy when you encounter various trials. This means it's something we can grow into. We can grow and be able to perceive trials as a good thing in our life. And so with a biblical perspective of suffering, we can interpret sort of any trial, any affliction with faith-filled hope that's accompanied by joy and so this was the first response of their welcoming the word. It was this new disposition that enabled them to suffer with joy. And the second result of welcoming the word is this. It's really internal life change. Internal life change. Second result of welcoming the word, internal life change. And we see this through the imitation of Christ and of his followers. Look again at verse 6. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord. So after embracing the word and embracing these missionaries' teaching to them, even in the midst of trials, although as we see joy-filled trials, these Thessalonians began to imitate the missionaries and ultimately the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The word imitators here in our text comes from a, a Greek verbal form that's mimeomai, mimeomai. And it's from that, from that word we get our word mimic. So these Thessalonians imitated the life of the missionaries. They mimicked them, we might say. 
We may have a negative connotation associated with imitation or, or, or mimic, mimicking. We kind of don't like those terms often, but he, it's a very good thing in the Scripture. It's an explicitly biblical idea. Famously, Paul said, be imitators of me just as I am of Christ in 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. In the same, same letter, he told the church, therefore, I exhort you, imitate me, Paul said. Paul told the church of Philippi not only to imitate him, but also those who follow the same pattern that he had. He says this in Philippians 3.17, Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk, to, walk according to the pattern you have in us. In 2 Thessalonians 3.7, Paul said, Follow our example. So Paul really had no qualms about telling others to imitate him. He actually commanded it, imitate me. And of course, he knew that in imitating himself, ultimately they were only imitating the Lord Jesus Christ. As Paul lived like a Christian before these Thessalonians, he lived like Christ, they observed it, and then began to do the same thing. And all of this is part of what it means, I think, in that Matthew 28 Great Commission, go make disciples. Through imitation, we become more like Christ. Jesus instructed that we make disciples both by baptizing and also by teaching others to obey all the things that he commanded. And teaching others to obey often includes the idea of modeling truth to them, living truth out before them. So in this way, Paul made disciples out of the Thessalonians. He taught the word of God to them, and then he lived it out before them. And as they imitated him, and then they imitated him, just as he encouraged and called them to do. The Thessalonians followed then the example of the missionaries, and then they also began to imitate Christ, which I think is the natural order uh, on sort of the missionary context, sort of new context, new converts on a missionary field. After embracing the gospel, the first thing that they have to see is just the lives of the missionaries. Their experience of Christianity is just founded in those men who came and preached Christ. And then the more they grow in their teaching and understanding of the life of Christ, the more they begin to shift and imitate the life of Christ fully. So by these men's dedicated example, the Thessalonians grew in their example and understanding of following Christ. And they embraced Jesus' life as the pattern for their own. So ultimately, as Christians, we are just imitators of Christ. Uh, which is, after all, why they called us Christians initially in the book of Acts. They just meant little Christ. We are to pattern our life after the life of Christ. So we look to our own lives, and we should ask ourselves, do we look like Christ? Does my life look like the life of Christ? And then we also need to think about how others are viewing us. Our, and who are we viewing? Do we look to others to imitate their life? Do we look to those who have gone before us and are we encouraged by them and spurred on? This imitation is the result of receiving the word. I can think of several godly men who have impacted my life who I just shamelessly imitate. I think of the discipline that I've received from my dear friend Tanner. I'm spurred on by his discipline. I think of the pastoral wisdom that I've gleaned from Pastor Brian Hughes. I think of the counseling wisdom that I've gained from my counselor, mentor, Randy Patton. I, I, I just so appreciate it. I want to be like him in so many ways. I think of, my le- of the leadership wisdom and theological precision that I learned from my pastor friend, Jerry Ragg. I think of the preaching model that I received from my favorite professor, Dr. Murphy. 
And I think of some of you, I desire to imitate the way that you, that you godly serve others in godly ways. I want to imitate that. I want to mimic some of the ways that you grow in godly maturity. And really the list could just go on and on. Part of welcoming the word into our lives means that we are going to imitate others who are setting a godly example for us. It's a, it's a life of imitation, following those who've set a pattern for us. So the, the church of Thessalonica welcomed the word, and as a result, they imitated the missionaries and ultimately the Lord Jesus Christ, and their lives were changing as a result. Internally, they were being transformed by the word of God. Manif- this was just manifested in this form of imitation. So I guess my question for you is, who are you imitating? Who are you modeling your life after? Do you have people in your life that you're looking to their walk with Christ and, and imitating your own walk with Christ after them? You need someone to follow. You should have human examples to pattern your life after. So I would just encourage you, find another person in our congregation to really chum up to for encouragement. Ask them how, to, how they got through different seasons of life. The season of life that you're going through right now, ask them, how did you get through that season? What did that look like? How, how did you do well in that season? Not just, not just survive, but sort of excel in the Christian life. I mean, that's what we're after. And we're not after just sort of a lukewarm Christianity, sort of ho-hum daily existence. But we want to be dangerous and bold in our Christianity. Uh, Christianity that makes a mark in this world. A Christianity that really paints a... Uh, a, a sort of a mark on your back from Satan that he's after you because you're making an effect for the kingdom. And you're just not going to get there without imitating others and ultimately the Lord Jesus Christ. And just as a side note, this is one reason that we as a church family should be, be eager to get together, to spend time with one another. As many churches today are really slimming down their Sunday morning service or their worship experience, sort of streamlining things, I want to move in the opposite direction. I don't think we need less time together. I think we need more time together. And this is why I love Sunday school and the fellowship that's just created around Sunday school on the Sunday morning. This is why I think things like what we're doing this evening when we're coming together just to be together and sing together. These are good things just for us to be together because you really can't imitate anyone that you don't know. If you don't know them, you can't imitate them. So in order to imitate them, we must get to know them. There's just simply no way around that. And so we just want to provide more and more opportunities for us to be together as a congregation so that we can be encouraging and spurring one another on. And this also implies that we would be living lives that are worthy of emulation, which brings us really to our third, part, third point, the third result of welcoming the word. We've seen the new disposition, then we've seen the internal life change that comes across as imitation, and finally, external encouragement, external encouragement, really modeling the Christian life to others, to the other side of the coin in some sense. Look again at verses 6 and 7. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Recall that these are, these are new Christians, recent converts to Christianity out of a pagan background. And less than one year old in the faith, they are modeling Christianity to others. He says here, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. And the you is actually, is actually a, a, a you plural. It's you all became an example. But it's also a singular example. You all became an example. 
which seems to evidence that this church itself and their life together was the true example. But obviously it would also include the lives of the individuals who made up the church. Both were exemplary. And this word example, it really just it comes from the, the idea of giving of an impression from a stamp or from striking a blow on something and creating a mark. It refers to a form or a pattern that would be used for reproducing something or replicating something. So the church was a pattern for other churches. And really, Paul writes, all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia were taking note of them. Well, what a thing to say. It's really one thing to be an example to just your pagan neighbors who are living godless lives and to be an example to them. That's one thing. But to be an example to other Christians who are also following the Lord Jesus with their life is really quite the commendation. They were an example to other Christians. This means that they were excelling in their Christian life. And all the believers in these two Roman provinces were aware of this church in Thessalonica in their response. And likely it was their response to suffering that really impressed the other churches, how they responded to the affliction that they were going through. So this is high praise for this young church of Thessalonica, and it was really well-deserved. As a church, they were young in the faith, but they were growing in great ways. They were serving as an example, and and thus they were being an external encouragement to others, which is really the natural byproduct of welcoming the word into their lives. The more we understand God's word, the more we understand what God has called us to be, the more we'll example that to others. We'll be a spiritual example to others. Our, Our lives will be a model for others to follow. The more we grow in the Lord, the more we'll be able to model these things to others because our lives are being conformed to the image of Christ. So the more we'll be able to be a model for others. So as we imitate the life of Christ, our life becomes a model for others. And to the degree that your life is changing and being conformed to the image of Christ, the greater your ability will be to set an example to others, the more this will be enhanced. Therefore, one of the reasons that we pursue spiritual growth is so that we can encourage others, encourage others. So in this sense, we walk circumspectly. We examine our lives closely. We walk in holiness. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.12, Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. So I guess, are you doing that? Is your life worthy of emulating? Is the way that you respond to adversity and trials something that you would want other Christians to emulate? Would you want other Christians to to look at the way that you work and then model their, your work ethic after their own, making their own, worth ec- their own work ethic like yours. Would you think of your parenting? Would you want others to model you the way you parent or the way you love your spouse or these sorts of things? Would you want others to emulate, emulate these things? So in this sense, the Christian life is never meant to be lived alone. We can't do these things by ourselves. Part of following Jesus means that you're in a community of people, another another group of Christians who follow Jesus together. In other words, we commit ourselves to a church. And inside this church, we strive to uphold one another and encourage one another. And part of the way we do this is by being an example to one another. So here is this final result of welcoming the word. They were an external encouragement to others. They were impacting others by their spiritual example. 
So their initial reception of the gospel led to this new disposition, this, this new way of life. And as they continued in the word, they grew in their ability to imitate those missionaries and ultimately the Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, they became an encouragement to others. And as I mentioned earlier, all of these results are true, I believe, to at least some degree of all true Christians. As a Christian who's experienced a new birth, you have been changed by God. We have, we have a new disposition. Paul writes about this in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, For if anyone is in Christ, if anyone is a Christian, the old things have passed away and all things have become new. We've received this new disposition. So a true Christian will love the person of God and will love the word of God and will love the people of God. Furthermore, true Christians will be experiencing ongoing sanctification. They'll be more and more, day by day, conformed to the image of Christ. Over time, not perfectly, but over time we grow to be more like Christ. And like the Thessalonians, Christians will imitate Christ and they'll imitate other godly examples. And finally, in so doing, we become an example to others. Both intentionally and unintentionally, this happens in our lives. So let us just do some reflection in our own lives. Let me ask you, do you know Christ? Is this first thing true of you? Do you have this new disposition? Is 2 Corinthians 5.17 true of you? Again, Paul said, if you are in Christ, the old things have passed away and all things have become new. Is this true of you? Because Paul said it was true of every true Christian. A new disposition. And in this case, in the Thessalonians, this manifested in their ability to suffer with joy, to experience and sort of transform their suffering into an experience of joy. So do you know Christ? And then then let me ask you, are you growing in Christ? Are you becoming more like Christ in time? Maybe you don't notice it as you look at your life on a day-by-day, but if you look back at your life from a year ago, can you see growth in your life? Are you changing I just want this to be sort of a a hallmark of our church, that we're never stagnating, never growing comfortable with where we're at, always growing, always, like Paul says, pressing on. That should be like us. We're always growing Christ. We never stop, always growing. That's what a Christian does. And finally, are you influencing others towards Christ? How are you influencing others? And maybe just passively. Are you setting a godly example for others, for others in the church to look to and see and be challenged by and be built up by? So that's our goal. Those are the responses, our results of welcoming the word. So let's even go to the Lord now in prayer, asking him to do these things even more in us. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We recognize that you've called us to be in it, to give our lives to knowing it. You said that you would sanctify us by your word. And your word is truth. You've called us to meditate on it day and night, like a man, like a tree planted by streams of water, bearing its fruit in its season, its leaf not withering. God, we pray that we would be like that. We'd be men and women that are just rooted and grounded in the truth of God's word. Lord, we know that's your will for our our lives. You You tell us so, so help us to do that. Help us to love the word of God and seek to bring it into our lives in every way, and then surrender our lives to the truth. Whatever you have said in your word, may we bring our lives under it and conform our lives to the truth. Finally, Lord, I just ask if there's anyone here who does not know Christ, would your spirit uh, just impress upon their heart their need for Christ? And would they look to Jesus Christ as the only means of salvation? For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which a 
person may be saved. So I just pray they'd come to Jesus Christ and they'd call out to him in saving faith. And for us who who know Jesus Christ, we just thank you for your grace because we don't deserve it. We don't deserve anything. All we deserve is your condemnation and your wrath. And so we, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who rescues us from the wrath to come. And we pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen.